This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 4, our wrap-up of Nash Tag 2022. This conversation asks a diverse panel of industry stakeholders from Big Pharma, Small Pharma, and Leading Edge Diagnostics to join our special guest, Professor Ian Rowe, and our co-hosts to discuss some specific elements of the last session of Nash Tag 2022, the two fireside chats exploring what we all must do to improve the clinical endpoints used to evaluate efficacy, safety, and tolerability of drugs and development. Specifically, this conversation explores some issues that might concern regulators and or patients with specific focus on ways to make trials faster and more cost-effective while improving their ability to produce clinically meaningful results. This conversation shares candid opinions from seven stakeholder voices, three of them new to the podcast, about events at the conference some have called the major inflection point in Nash drug development. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Aaron Quirk. I wholeheartedly agree with most of what you said. I guess the first thing I would say is the FDA is slow to react to change. That is not always the case. And in fact, just given the events and what the FDA has approved in a matter of weeks, what's been put before them in the past year or so is a testament to the fact that the regulators can act in an expedited fashion, particularly when there's high unmet need and when there is good data to support things. But that's the key. And that's what you were saying at the end, which with I fully agree is there needs to be data. I'd also like to react to what Ian said and that we have a long way to go. And there probably is a long way to go until we can fully get rid of liver biopsies in clinical studies and rely solely on non-invasive tests rather than histological tests or clinical outcomes to get drugs approved in NASH. But that doesn't mean it's impossible. And in fact, the journeys of these thousands of miles start with these first few little steps. So number one, I'll say again, I've been in many different settings with many different representatives from many different regulatory authorities, and they generally don't say a whole lot more than what has been publicly issued in their written statements and their written guidances. So I've heard some people say that they were disappointed that there weren't more definitive statements made by the regulators on the workshop. But actually, I agree with you. I think there was an openness, a real openness to be wanting to part of the discussion. And I think that's great. Involving the community more in that discussion is critical because the regulators are there to serve the public health, right? And so I think if we have these workshops in the future at NASHTAG, I would love to see community and patient representatives on the panels, you know, not just in the audience making commentary at the microphone, but on the panels themselves, because it's a critical point. It's, it's, it's the patient's disease after all. What we can start doing, though, is generating the data sets. And let's go back to something that Dr. Turner mentioned several times during the panel, and that is the example set in the HIV field in the 1990s. And that's something I know quite a bit about having worked in that space for many years and being an HIV specialist in a former life. So, you know, the first drug for HIV was Zidavudine. The papers were published in the late 80s, and I think the drug was approved in 1990. And then there were a whole bunch of other drugs that were approved in the same class, but they stopped working because the virus got resistant. And it wasn't until the onset of protease inhibitors and we figured out it's all about the virus stupid and we started combining multiple mechanisms that we were able to get people 
live longer in the mid-90s. And then it was in the late 90s that HIV viral load was accepted. So think about that. You have to have effective interventions that move the biomarker so that that change in biomarker can be associated with the clinical benefit, which in this case was surviving, right? Um, Or lack of progression to opportunistic infection, so late-stage disease. So we need to start having effective drugs out there for NASH is the bottom line. We need to have effective biomarkers for how to measure them. And I think we're getting there. And then it's going to take time to accumulate the data to show that that translates to a clinical benefit. So yes, Ian, I do think it will be some time for those data sets to mature. But if we can start working together and pooling the data that we have, writing these consensus papers, and maybe even changing practice guidelines about how biopsy is used in practice or how the NITs are used even in diagnosis, that can be one of those important very first steps where we can start putting fewer needles in fewer patients' livers. Ian Rowe. I read that's really helped me understand a few issues that Dr. Turner talked about. And I guess a couple of big issues that we face. One is that the natural history is very long. And unfortunately for those patients with HIV AIDS in the late 80s and early 90s, that wasn't the case, meaning that the time between diagnosis and severe illness was often short and so that you could see an improvement in prognosis quite quickly. And in the context of cirrhosis, I was reflecting on the the guidance um, from the FDA that that they were all to be endpoint driven studies. And I'm now wondering a bit based on what Vlad said in the meeting, whether that guidance is from a company perspective, a disincentive to doing studies in the patients who've got the greatest need, because where there's no potential for early approval, you're embarking on a study of uncertain duration and where there's very little evidence about you know whether you can really prevent people progressing to the point of decompensation and that makes me wonder whether influencing that guidance by sharing non-invasive test data you know and potentially introducing an approvable surrogates in sub-IH in the first instance might actually be useful. And in general, I'm not a massive fan of unapproved surrogates because they can get us into difficulty. But do wonder now whether in that population who really is at the greatest need of treatment and where there are still relatively few studies, that is somewhere where we could really influence the agency. Amy Articolo. I heard a very clear request to submit even just a simple slide deck to the docket. So again, where there are data, they should be reviewed by the regulator. That might be a really important first step right there. And then you make a great point that the time to endpoint for someone with advanced HIV disease and severe immunocompromise might be longer than someone per se with like F2 or F3 fibrosis and NASH. So maybe what we need to be thinking about are do we have the right endpoints? Mortality the appropriate or, you know, morbidity, the right endpoint in that patient population. Are there other patient reported outcomes, the feel part of feel function and survive, the function part of function that might be more relevant? I see Amy smiling here. Maybe she has something to add because maybe instead of focusing on the biopsy and so much and how to make it better, which is important, don't get me wrong, maybe we can also be rethinking what is our relevant clinical outcomes in a fibrotic NASH population that's not cirrhotic. Yeah, Erin, and, you know, appreciate all your comments and Stephen, yours as well, and everyone else on the podcast, I, I hear all of this and I think, what are we trying to cause? You know, getting back to the why it matters, what is it and how are we going to do it? And what are we trying to cause? We're really trying to impact patients' lives. I like to put it in the function and feel because it, it resonates both as a physician that treated so many patients and as well as in the role today and working with all of you. So if that's the case, looking at what exactly we're trying to cause will be exceedingly important, especially when we collectively work with regulatory bodies and patient advocates in the sense of really understanding, as 
because we are embarking on this work, right? This force, if you will. And a couple of years from now, we'll look back at this moment in time and say, this is the ch- this was the moment of change that really started driving us to be that force. When we think about the patient's perspective, they don't want to be told after years of being said, well, your LFTs are a little high or you should lose weight or you should be exercising more. And we really don't have great guidance of how to do that either outside of what we know. Then they're told they have cirrhosis. Then they're told that their liver's in bad shape or even worse, that they might need a transplant or palliative care. So how do we think about this from the patient perspective and what's really going to happen in clinical practice in the sense of, are they going to really be told as, as patients that they need biopsies once, twice, maybe three times a year, depending on the therapeutic and what could come to market? That's not reality, right? So when, when I see everybody collectively nodding their heads, because you know if I was in the shoes of a patient and someone told me that, I'd probably go, you know what? No, thanks. So we collectively really want to focus on what are we trying to drive here and how are we going to do it? And I was you know, optimistic hearing that there is openness at the regulatory body perspective. And I'm hopeful that we will have a strategy depending on what type of analyses and what type of data we're going to be able to produce to make that happen. And it will take some thinking outside the box in order to make that happen. And we will need to collectively pull together to be able to provide that data in order to move the needle. Because individually, it's not going to be as effective if we all go and have data sets as individuals or siloed as opposed to a collective. That all makes a ton of sense. I have two thoughts I want to add that are each a little bit off to the side, but still on this basic topic. Number one is I went back after chatting with a couple of people after Saturday night, and I went and looked at the podcast notes that we took on the January 31st meeting, which is to this day the second most listened episode in the history of the podcast with what we talked about right after that. And when I contrast our reaction to what Joe Turner and Frank Anania had to say that day and the general reactions to what they were saying Saturday night, it's clear there's just been, look, movement within administrative government agencies could politely be described as glacial on a good day. But this looks a little more like you can see that the glacier has moved or melted or done something. It's not in the same place it was. Then they said, well, show us something. But now I think they're a lot more clear about what they want to see and where they need to see and where they know that they don't have good enough answers. To me, that's huge. Anytime a government agency says, we're willing to talk about what we don't know, as compared to, well, show us what we need to know, that's a big step in the direction. I'm also mindful of Terry Milton coming on this podcast as patient advocate after the patient-focused drug development meeting and mentioning that Joe Turner had texted at some point in the meeting that if he knew at the end of that meeting what he had learned several years earlier, there would have been different decisions made, which Donna, I think on the podcast, took to be about OCA. But whether it was about OCA or not, it was about an acknowledgement that goes, we've been doing this in a way that's not sensitive to key elements of the situation. So that's pivotal number one. And collectively, that left me with a pretty good feeling about the meeting. Um, Number two, one of the things Stephen has been persuading me of over the last just couple, three weeks, but I think it's important, is that there's the result at the end, and then there's what do we do at the beginning in the context of screen fail rates and economics. We were talking about this yesterday, but it was only the four of us, so I'll share it with you guys and whoever else listens. When you talk about a screen fail rate dropping from 80% to 50%, if you flip those numbers, you're talking about an acceptance rate that goes from 20% to 50%, which means you are accepting two and a half times as many patients. And that even feels bigger to me than 80 to 50, and in fact, it is bigger, and economically, it's way bigger. So to the degree that there's openness at the beginning to look at the role of NITs so that we can do that 80 to 50 thing or even go lower than that, then that makes the economics of trials, the ability to develop data quickly, uh, the willingness to take risks, all that stuff changes because the cost of doing it changes. And then if at the same time we're working on the back end, it feels to me kind of like a pincer movement. Stephen, I don't use a lot of military analogies, but I'll go with this one. It feels to me like a pincer movement. We're kind of flanking on both sides at the beginning and at the end. Stephen Harrison. Let me just tag on to that because I don't think, I guess I, I don't feel like it's gotten the justice that that it needs to have. And that is anybody enrolling 
NASH trials right now, and you're looking at histopathology, and you're incorporating MRI or some sort of midterm assessment, in other words, to screen patients in, we go through labs, MRI, and biopsy, you're looking at screen fail rates of north of 80%. I don't care who you are, that is cost prohibitive. And in the setting of that, you also have incredible extensions of timelines to enroll patients into the study. So we need to be mindful of that. And if we're going to continue to generate interest from investors in pharma in the field of NASH, look, we still have a long way to go. We, we, we haven't even really touched the iceberg on combination therapies. So we need to be mindful of enriching patients for enrollment into these trials. And I've spent the past decade looking at pre-screen strategy to enhance enrollment. And we had a pretty good handle on it until we went and changed the paradigm on reading histopathology from a single pathologist to multiple pathologists. And we showed you the data on what that means relative to screen fail rates. It rises dramatically. So we have to get to a point where we can bring that screen fail rate back down in the setting of having to look at histopathology. The provocative data that I think was presented here was do something simple like just look at more liver tissue. You're already collecting it. Why are you leaving most of it in a block? look at it and help that drive your inclusion criteria. And at the end of the day, you should see an effect on placebo response rate. I mean, I was struck when I was putting those slides together that you can look at the SEMA data and you can look at the lanafibrinor data and you can look at the fibrosis endpoint. And the response to the high dose for both drugs was exactly the same. One hit STAT-SIG and one didn't because of the placebo response. And that's exactly the same thing we saw with elafibrinor and a beta-colic acid. So there's a huge thing with this placebo response that's variable and it's not necessarily driven by improving lifestyle in the placebo cohort. So that's another big part of this that I think is worthy of reflection on coming out of NASHTAG. Louise Campbell. Can I just ask, it's just quickly as something to Stephen was saying, uh, there was a lot of talk last year about platform trials and combining the placebo arm to be able to use that. Is that where there could be a strength so that everybody is compared to the same placebo Um, if I understand platform trials better? Look, it could be. The problem is there's just some issues relative to platform trials, probably more than we have time to get into here. But until we can have a better understanding of the role of nutrition and placebo response, the role of the natural history of the placebo, and then the role of the heterogeneity of the liver biopsy in placebo, it's hard to really understand what that's going to be and how a platform trial could potentially improve on that. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with another stimulating conversation. Don't be surprised if it relates in some way to Martin Luther King Day. Until then, keep your distance mask up so you can stay safe and surf on. And we can see you soon on the Surfing Nash Tsunami Podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.